so guy nick mason sourceful of secrets of which we are um two-fifths right are we're going back out on the road in the summer across the uk we are we're, it's all of june so brace yourself what's it called it's called the set the control store what a brilliant name who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then you I might. did come up with uh, Nick Mason's all sort of secrets. You did. And in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's Is You Boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. goes up to 1972, with all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never yeah. heard, stuff that no one's ever Echoes, heard, frankly. Obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you and, know, uh, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. Was he, was he, um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Sourceful of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Hello, Guy. Hello, Gary. Yes, how are you? Oh, I'm all right. Well, you know well, how I, know I am. I know how you are. Let's, let's face we've been in rehearsal together all day. So, um, well, we have. Yeah. It's been very nice, hasn't it? We've been, been getting our chops back yeah, and uh, been playing loud music together. It's very nice. Indeed. So yeah, this week you know Alan McGee, don't I know. I've never met him for a long time. I haven't seen anyone for a long time, have you? You know, he's our first manager, isn't he? He's our first, yeah. But he's manager, label boss, Svengali. It's credible A and R man. Yeah, and just and scenester, isn't he? He was. I mean, you know, it's like eye of the swirling eye of the storm. We're talking about the guy who discovered, you know, Jesus and Mary Chain, My Bloody Valentine, Primal Scream, and of course, Oasis. Let's get him on. Welcome to the Rock on Tours. Okay, guys, I'm ready. This was great, guys. I, I, it's so great to talk to two guys that have done this. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. You know, what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. I've listened to a few of them and they've been really good, man. I'm sitting in the back of the car coming into London. They're brilliant. I know you're musicians, but you've been more professional than a lot of journalists. Remember me? I'm in a band now. <laughs> it's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. To, to get good thing, at yeah. something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. Hello, mate. Nice to see you. How are you doing? I don't think I've ever met you, Gary. No, I was saying that to Guy today. I don't think we've ever met in all this time. We would, probably would have had a fight or something, no. maybe, at some stage. In the Having day. been on a deep dive over your past for the last couple of... Well, last day, this has been very short notice. I'm actually feeling quite cheated because I got to know you in the sort of mid-late 90s. My recollections of time with you are kind of rather sedate dinners at the Groucho, you know, and I, you know, I missed all the fun. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean... It was a time, wasn't it? You know what I mean? No, I like loads of your records, Gary. I like Chant. Oh. that's right. Because I mean, I always, I think, because I always saw creation and what you guys were doing in the eighties, especially as being the sort of, you know, the the uh, antidote to the sort of posh pop that we were making. And then there's nothing against that. That's that was absolutely, totally right to have. We were like, I mean, creation came out of a kind of school band, really, and it just a bit like. The way you guys all done it as well. And um, it was like, I was the least talented musically, so I became the manager, you know. And it was like me, Bobby, Andrew, Throb, <laughs> Beatty. We all went to school with each other. And that was, so the primal scream story and the creation stories intertwined, do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, for me, it was what I saw of you guys was also the Primrose Hill crowd when my my ex-wife Sadie was living in Primrose Hill and I was always around that way. And just the noise that was generated on that street. I was sober then. I wasn't the one that was making the noise at that point, you know what I mean? Because, <laughs> and that's why I knew Guy, we've got a great mutual friend called uh, Nick Wear Clothes. What a brilliant, brilliant guy, and uh, I signed Nick, and through signing Nick, I sort of became pals with loads of his friends. You know that's I mean? right, yeah. Right, yeah, right, yeah. Right. Well, I wanted to get to that later, actually, because that's, that's cause there's a whole thing of like having owned the nineties. You then went on this mad spree of <laughs> signing the eighties. <80s. laughs> I could go on about that. <laughs> 
I saw, you know, Kevin Rowland coming. It was, it was really weird. It's like, right, let's, let's have the 80s. I'd love to hear your, <laughs> what your thoughts were on that Kevin Rowland record because I thought it was a good record. It was a good record. It was, <laughs> it was somewhat antagonistic, <laughs> I thought, the way he was presented. Yeah. Look, you know what? I think you were a kind of perfect couple in many ways because he's a revolutionary, isn't he? He's a bit of an anarchist in the business, Kevin, and yeah. it seemed like a really... A good combination, but maybe you can't have two anarchists in the same room. We had to go on holiday after a while by dealing with me, Gary, because I was like the nightmare A&R guy. I used to give the bands nervous breakdowns half the time because I was so OCD, and that's, that's what I'm like. I live in my own in London because nobody can live <laughs> with me, right? And if I took you into that bedroom, there's like a thousand tracksuits and they're all black and blue, and that's kind of me, do you know what I mean? Because yeah, you, yeah. you run, don't you? A lot yeah. now, yeah, like yeah. 15 lost, miles or something. I decided to lose weight and I, I lost, uh, I'm still losing it. I've lost 47 pounds in the last year. Wow, wow. You look really yeah, well. I, you, I, you you know, well. I follow you on Instagram because what's interesting is the things you see, is that you still, from all the stuff you post, you still have that totally unbridled yeah. enthusiasm for rock and roll and, for, you know. And young bands. Now, Alan, there's so much in your story. I mean, you know, going through the whole Jesus and Mary chain of Primal Scream and then suddenly discovering this little band called Oasis, you know. We should get going on, 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 on where you... OK, well, it starts with, let's start with, because your first gig, you went to see Thin Lizzy with Bobby Gillespie, right? No, no, that was his first gig guy. Oh, OK. You were school friends, right? He's my best friend. He still has. I'm seeing him on Saturday night. But I was going to gigs... He had great parents, and I didn't have great parents without being horrible, right? And they didn't care what I did, and I was going to gigs by the time I was 10 or 11, so I saw T-Rex, Bowie, Roxy, Slade, Mud, Gary Alvin, so everybody. And then he jumped on my bandwagon, because yeah. he's a bit younger than me, and went, can you take me to see Thin Lizzy? Now, was that the Jailbreak tour? Because yep. that's the first yep. gig I ever saw when I went with my best mate from school, Martin Glover, who you know as youth. <laughs> <laughs> it's a small world. We're the same age, so glam rock was such a massive turn on yeah. for us and it set the benchmark, didn't it, really, yeah. for how rock and roll theatre should be. It was amazing. And glam thing, I mean, all I ever did was sign what I loved and what I loved was glam and punk. And that was it. And then, you know, the obvious things like Bowie, blah, blah, blah. But it was like, I liked, I mean, you're talking about a guy that reaches for the Lindsay DePaul records. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I am perverse, man. I like the stuff nobody else likes. Do you know what I mean? Did you always have, the, you know, it was, it was kind of after the whole Acid House thing when it suddenly got cool when everyone was sort of with the, the whole Balearic beat thing, when everyone was yeah. dropping ABBA into stuff and, and, yeah. and then it became the guilty pleasures thing and now, you know, all the doors are open to everything. But were you always like yeah. that? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, Acid House was good though because I was a stamp collector really. Do you know what I mean? I was signing bands. I can tell you how I actually did well in the music business. It was a total fluke really, right? I liked the music and everything like that, but I was in a punk band and we weren't very good. It was me and Ennis for the Scream, right? And nobody would manage us and nobody would put a record out, right? And I learned how to do the whole thing, to do my own records. So I did, I learned how to manufacture, master, produce, design the sleeves, manufacture the sleeves, promote them at radio, at press, and get gigs. And at a certain point, I went, I think I'm called a record company. And I started putting <laughs> people's records out. What I didn't know that is I had kind of commercial taste and I started signing bands that other people liked. Do you know what I mean? But that's the thing that I, that I find interesting with it, was I wanted to ask about, you kind of answered it, was that it's one thing to be the maverick talent, to be the kind of Andrew Oldham, Chris Stamp, Kit Lambert, spotting talent and having the ideas to do it, which is what you have. Especially when you're all being all crazy about everything. The actual nuts and bolts of finding the manufacturer and doing catalogue numbers and getting the VAT returns and, you know, yeah. the actual mechanics of running a record company, you know. I learned all that by the time I was 21. I learned by default, because I was doing my own records, how to do that whole thing. There was very few people in 1980, 1981, that knew how to 
do the whole thing. And I was like 20, 1920. Well, I suppose up in Glasgow, there was there was that little bit of cottage industry in the music business, like postcard. Yeah. And orange juice and the bluebells. And there was a kind of scene already that was a bit, I'm not quite shoegazy, but you know what I'm saying. Alan Horn was fantastic. We came slightly behind that. And I'm going to say slightly behind it, Gary. Six months behind it. But uh, it was brilliant. I mean, I don't think we were ever influenced by Postcard in any musical way, but we were definitely influenced by the fact that you, you, you thought if Alan Horn can do it, and this is not slagging him because I like Alan Horn, I must be able to do that. Do you know what I mean? Because he doesn't know anything else I don't know, you know? But you were in London, weren't you? So, I mean, who... The labels you were looking at, as well, would I guess, were 4AD around then? No. I mean, the label I was looking at, to be honest, there was a, a band called The Television Personalities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. they had a label called uh, Wham. I'll be honest with you, this sounds a terrible thing to admit to. I kind of nicked their idea because they were merging punk rock and psychedelia. And I was like, that's a fucking great idea. And, you know, Dan was a utter nihilist and destroyed himself. Do you know what I mean? He's currently ill, you know what I mean? In a care home, I'm friends with him. I talk to him once a month, you know? But yeah, that's where we started. I loved Wham Records and and I started doing it. But like everything, when you start doing it, you become your own thing. And then I found the Mary chain and it blew up, you know? And so yeah, where, what was your where, where club? Was, sorry. You had your club, didn't you? Which is That's that, what I was going to yeah, ask. Sorry. What was sorry, the guys, scene, sorry. as it were? No, 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 no. Because, I mean, the, you know, obviously this is a... There's the whole... of the Our, you know, we're, do, we're making records that based around the Beetroot Club in 1981. Yeah. You know, and there was that whole sort of Steve Strange, Philip Salon yeah. scene, Hell Club and everything. Where were you guys? I mean, I'd just come to London, Gary, um, if we could have got into your clubs, we would have come, right? Do you know what I mean? <laughs> we we were squatting. We came to London and we were squatting. We were doing gigs with the UK subs. Now, this is me and Andrew. Who oh, wow. Charlie Harper. Yeah, and we write songs with Bobby. i tell you a good Charlie Harper story. I went to Public Image about two years ago with my son, right? And he loves the UK subs. And this little, like, unicorn walked past, Right. And I went, that looks like Char- a granddad version of Charlie Harper. And Dan goes, it fucking is. <laughs> and it was Charlie Harper. I mean, we Charlie Harper. But, but he, he was 40 then. Yeah, he's about 75. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I remember he came to see my first ever band, which was this mob playing at the Trafalgar in Shepherd's Bush. And I went up to say, I think you're great. And he just thought I was some kid and he went, yeah, come in the shop, I'll give you a half-price haircut. <laughs> He's a hairdresser. He is. It was a hairdresser, yeah. yeah we used to be really big to him. But when you were doing that, Gary, that's what we were doing. We, what were we into? We are probably into the jam. We'd started putting our own records out via Rough Trade distribution. And we were learning. I was learning anyway. I mean, I think Andrew was learning to be a, a great songwriter. But I was, I didn't know I was learning, but I was learning how to, I suppose, run a record company, you know. Yeah, and of course, The Creation was a band from the yeah. 60s. It was a psychedelic yeah. British band, wasn't it? Yeah. Oh, and then you, didn't you then later found out that Robert Stigwood actually had a label called Yeah, but that was, well, that was only when the internet happened. Yeah. <laughs> and I put in Creation Records one day, and I went, fucking hell, man, I've totally nicked it. It was a label in 1967. <laughs> I didn't know. <laughs> so who was, who was the band that really sort of got you started was it Jesus and Mary Chain or was it was it Primal Scream because no no Primal Scream wasn't for a while was it they I mean I I put out 10 or 11 records on creation funded by the club the living room which is a, a room above a pub where exactly was that that was North London somewhere. Adam's Arms I tell you who owns the building now that pub and it's it, you'll, you'll laugh David Beckham and <laughs> I think it's Gordon Ramsay you know what I mean where is it it's a Adams House, Conway Street. No, 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 no. That's just around the corner from me. Yeah. That's Guy Ritchie's Guy Ritchie, pub. sorry, yeah, yeah. That's where your club yeah, was. Toffs is all the same. Yeah. Who knows? There was the upstairs room above that pub. That's a restaurant now. Yeah, well, that's where, that's where it started. And that's where I, I put on the very first gigs of the Jesus and Mary chain, Primal Scream, the Jasmine Minx. And they were all like the third on the bill. In, in that room. Wow. 
there's a scene in the film, in your film about the Jesus and Mary Chain, about how it's your mate from um, TV personalities yeah. who's just completely out and can't run the desk. Yeah. And so there's all this feedback. Yeah. And so there was just a complete accident. And that becomes their sound. Well, that's my that- version of it. I think oh, that's okay. what happened. They would deny that. <laughs> He's here to tell the stories, Guy, not you to tell his. <laughs> the, the band, the Jesus and Mary Chain, look, look, the reason I think my version's correct is I have the demo from before they recorded Upside Down. And it's like Ramones meets Dr. Mix and the remix, but there was no feedback on it. And then Joe, who couldn't mix to save his life, messed the sound up so bad. And we were like, it actually sounds good with the feedback. And that's, (laughs) it grew out of that. You're you're gonna have to just uh, pause on this for two seconds, Mike. I don't think my kid can get in the door. Right. Oh, well, actually, well, I'll tell you something I'll, 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 to tell you a story then. Because like, I always love Chris Thomas, yeah, you know, the man. legendary Chris Thomas, always told me the story which I always loved about how he went to see the Jesus and Mary Jane. <laughs> and he said the bass player had two strings on his bass. Yeah. So he went backstage after and said, Excuse me, you're the bass player. Aye, what of it? He goes, What's about your bass? What of it? He goes, Well, it's got two strings. Aye, what of it? He said, Well, why have you got two strings on your bass? He said, In case one of them breaks. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's probably true. What do you think it was about Scotland that was creating this sort of shoegazing dream pop thing that was... What what were the influences up there? I think the real truth is, like me and the primals, the guys in primals, we were just obsessed with rock and roll. Do you know what I mean? That's why when you're talking about, oh, I bet you, you know, we hated you or something like that, which we never did, right? We were probably jealous of <laughs> no, you. No, we were no. probably like, these guys are like, they're on top of the pops. And do you know what I mean? And like, you know, they're having that away. They're on tour. Now, we, that yeah. was probably where we, we were in love with rock and roll. It was as basic as that, that we just, I mean, I suppose we had a unique voice in a lot of ways because it was what it was. We were making, it was almost like the less we had, the better it got. Do you know what I mean? And, and I think that was, that was a lot to do with a lot of that early music that we put out, you know, especially Major Chain, you know. And also, do you think there was a thing of having this indie level of, like when you're a label like that, there was this indie world, you know, did, was your level of ambition sort of shaped by that? Like top of the indie charts and a cover of NME uh, rather than yeah, top but, of the pops and, you know, yeah. yeah guy, you know me. I mean, I'm one of the most ambitious motherfuckers out there. <laughs> once I had, like, you know, like number one, I wanted a real number one. And then once I got, like, a lot of cash, I wanted a fucking lot of cash. It was like... It's all yeah. been like that, do you know what I mean? Yeah, but you had a particular, you know, style and a taste. That's the thing, you weren't going to sacrifice, you were still only going to sign bands that you thought were cool. Yeah. His integrity, your integrity was important, especially when you're a kid, it is, isn't it? I mean, yeah. I mean, I think we succeeded on a lot of levels because we just did not know the rules. Do you know what I mean? It actually worked a lot of the time, you know, in business because we just didn't know how to do it. We just made it work for us, and it kind of became a unique thing, you know. So, who was the what was the first hit? Alan? Well, the hit bands were Jesus and Mary Chain, then House of Love, then My Bloody Valentine, then Primal Scream, and then we never really started having a lot of hits to about nineteen ninety, Gary. But all these other bands, as you said, they all got in the top forty. But what you've got there is you've got some incredible talented people. I mean, Kevin Shields is extraordinary talent yeah. and, and obviously Bobby as well so you, that was your eye what you were good at was as, was an A&R man and, and record companies well, must have wanted you to join them as their head A&R man they did they did and especially it got really big by obviously the Oasis thing happened and uh, well, Primal Scream happened Shumadella came out sold about 3 million Loveless came out did about 1 million Bandwagon S came out did a million but most of them in America so then the British music business A&R guys started taking me seriously and the next band I signed was Oasis. So they, they actually semi went after that. You two were in for that. They were their record company, Mother Records, and Andy McDonald at right. Gotas. But I'd already got a good thing going with Noel, so Noel came with me. And then Oasis in pretty immediately did 7 million of a definitely maybe. And then Morning Glory came out and it did something like, in the first three months, it did something like 10 million or something. 
Look, we should get on to that, Alan, because I think really one of the key changes in your life and changes in music generally was when you fall in love with Acid House yeah. and, and Primal Scream makes Scream a Delica yeah. and, you know, that whole shift in scene that went on. I mean, we spoke a few weeks ago to Peter from New Order and, you know, they had a similar kind of transition. You had a sort of epiphany and moved to Manchester and you started putting out those records, which is it's quite ironic, isn't it, that kind of Tony Wilson at Factory, uh, at the heart of everything, kind of missed it. Yeah, well, I mean, I love Tony, one of my friends. How I moved to Manchester was, it wasn't in to do with music, to do with drugs. And, uh, <laughs> and, and, and basically... Take us through it, take us through it. <laughs> well, I went on up because I was big, I've been mates with Wilson since 84, 85. And I was, uh, he'd invited me up and it was a New Order and Happy Mondays. And I was, you know, I was off my nut. I'd been doing these in London, but I got on to uh, Ecstasy in, in Manchester. I had a great night at the Hacienda. He'd opened up the basement of the Hacienda, and it was like, it was it was an insane party, right? Do you know what I mean? And, uh, you know, it was like all the pop stars, but on top of that, all the football players of the time, we won't go into names, <laughs> right? And, and, you know, there was a lot going on. And I phoned Tony the Monday, and I went, I'm moving to Manchester. And he went, Erasmus, oh, yeah. who yeah. owned Factory Return, has got a flat above our office. And I rented it. And then I, I moved into Manchester where I turned out, I think, three or four girls. And I just basically partied for about the next year. Do you know what I mean? So I kind of went for the drugs, guys. It wasn't, it wasn't a particular... It, it was a good musical move because it opened me up, but... I was going for the hedonism, you know. But were you getting stuff done? You were clearly getting stuff done as well while you're there. That's that's what's really impressive. Yeah, I was kind of getting stuff done. Do you know what I mean? I was probably getting more done than I thought. You know what I mean? I mean, I was making Scream of Delica at the time. You know what I mean? Well, no, I wasn't. No, Scream of Delica was well, that was '89, wasn't it? So or '90, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Did sort of my bloody Valentine and, and Kevin were they all going? You know, Jesus man, you know, you're losing it. You get you're, you're into no, disco. You know? <laughs> what are you doing? Were you trying to get all of them to get an eight oh eight drum machine? <laughs> Barry, he was probably saying, "Great, that old buffoon is up in Manchester. Let's let's carry on down the London." <laughs> right, right. <laughs> it found me painful. I mean, I probably was. Do you know what I mean? I suppose the Stone Roses had already released their album, hadn't they? Just before Scream of Delica, but was was that a big influence on where you wanted to take Bobby? Mondays and, and Roses were just getting big in '89. They were just starting to happen, and uh, I was friends, you know, with Manny and and Sean and, and Gary and everybody. Do you know what I mean? And uh, but we were all a similar age. I was a tiny wee bit older than them, and uh, we just were like we were kind of we're good friends, and um, it was just creation becoming something different. What I was saying to you is, like, in up to about 87, 80, early 88, I was like a kind of Tim Buckley fan. Do you know what I mean? I was right. like quite a kind of singer-songwriter kind in that zone. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, Laurel Canyon. And then Acid House happened, and then suddenly I was like wanting to have Acid House hits, you know? Was it you that put Andrew Weatherall then with Bobby? No, I don't think it was. I mean, I was there when the, the initial meeting happened, we were at a rave, Gary, me and Bobby, summer of 89, in Brighton. Went over the field at four in the morning. Remember, you used to head for the field, and if you yeah. had music, with me and Bobby and about, I don't know, three or four other people. And then, Guy, all your pals were there, the KLF. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, Alex and all that lot. Fucking the grid, all that mob were all there. <laughs> and we were out of our minds. And I was like, it got to at nine in the morning and I, the ecstasy had run out. And I was like looking in the grass because I was sure that somebody had dropped to me. And all walked up and went, what are you doing? And I went, I'm looking for ecstasy in the grass as I'm on my hands and knees. And this was us meeting. And, and Bobby was there. Bobby, I think Bobby was there. People fought two world's wars for this. <laughs> and Weatherall was like, oh, I like your fucking band, Mickey. Primal Scream will meet Bob. And it kind of, but it wasn't me that put that together. I think, I, I have to give it to Andrew Ennis. The guy I came down to London with the, the, the Primal Scream kind of little boffin guy, you know, and songwriter. And I think Andrew was the one that went, let's do something with, with Weatherall, you know. 
I kind of wanted to jump back before we go on was with this because I was really fascinated about how a little label like you managed to get in position of my bloody Valentine spending like years <laughs> and untold stupid kind of 80s pop money on making a record and locking you out the studio is that loveless loveless right yeah but how, how did you let that happen <laughs> well i don't know if i did let it happen i think kevin she made right. it happen uh, we made the first record as in anything for seven grand sold about a hundred thousand copies good business so i suppose we naively yeah. thought you know that's what was going to happen with loveless and you know that's not what happened with Loveless. Do you know what I mean? You know, it, you know, after about a year, I mean, I was like haranguing them for the record. They kept ramping up the cost of the record, and uh, I think I essentially got blacklisted for going to the studio. There was never a security guard like the film. Like I can't imagine that being that situation in a recording studio ever. Yeah, I was told to, you know, like not come to the studio anymore, and it nearly did bankrupt. Do you know what I mean? It was like cost is two hundred and seventy grand. Do you know what I mean? It was insane. You know. Which in those days was, <laughs> and I guess we should just have a nod to your partners in the yeah, in absolutely. the company as well. Who were they? Well, the main one was a guy called Dick Green, who's a great, great guy. He was my lead guitarist in my little kind of punky hmm. band, and I, he was just a guy that he was less off his nut than me. So he was the straight guy in the relationship. You know what I mean? This episode of Rock on Tours is sponsored by AG One, the daily nutrition supplement. AG1 is a comprehensive and convenient blend of over 70 vitamins, minerals and other vital ingredients like gut-friendly bacteria, antioxidants and much more. Just one scoop of AG1 daily has all the nutrients you need to support your mental performance, energy levels, heart health and immune system. To be honest, it's pretty vital stuff for us because when you've got a life on the road and you're short of time or you're too busy to plan and prepare healthy meals, you're getting your podcast together, you're being shouted at and it's just a nightmare. AG1 gives me all the good stuff and helps keep my energy levels where I need, ready for showtime or doing the podcast and with a nice vanilla taste. It keeps me focused, feeling good, feeling healthy with its daily dose of vitamin C and zinc. And it's so easy to use. Just one scoop a day gives me over 70 carefully selected ingredients. Simple. Trusted by Olympians, F1 drivers and the rock on tours. So if you want to replace your multivitamin and more, start with AG1. Try AG1 and a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first subscription. Go to drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. That's drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. Check it out. So anyway, let's get on to Scream of Delica because I do think that's yeah. right. this is oh, a, yeah. such an important album and loaded, especially. You know. When was the first time you heard it? How was it introduced to you? Well, it was a track, Gary, called I'm Losing More Than I'll Ever Have. Primal Scream, they come out, I put a couple of indie singles out in the 80s. I'd signed them to Rob Dickens. It went in about 67 in the charts. Half the band left. Then they made another album, and I put them back on creation. And they made a New York Doll sounding record. And this is going into Acid House, right? It was so out of time. And it wasn't actually that good. But they had one track on it. It was genius. And it was called I'm Losing More Than I'll Ever Have. They were touring, but... When we started that tour, it was like kind of 500 people a night. About a year later, as we were still taking it around, it was like 200 people a night. It was about to die. And we decided to put out I'm Losing More Than I'll Ever Have. And I think because me and Bobby were going to a lot of clubs, and Bobby was actually pretty much like, is this going to work, McGee? And it was only me being me going, it's going to work. And he looks like a pop star, right? He looks like a rock star. Yeah, the Bob's always looked great. So basically, we go, oh, let's get a mix done. And Ennis goes, let's get Andy Weatherall. So we get this Andy Weatherall mix, and it comes back the first time, and there's no Bobby Gillespie on it. And oh. you know what I'm like? I'm like, put him back in the mix. And they're like, no, don't. <laughs> like, it's a dad. So eventually, it goes back and forward two or three times, and we get loaded. And I still, and this is just shows you how fucking fluky the whole thing is. I still thought it's an extra track in a 12-inch. And we, we put it out as the third track in a 12-inch, December 89. And by the time Christmas happens, right, you know, we come back the first week after Christmas and everybody is going, that track loaded, what a track. 
And I still didn't flip it. And it got to about another two weeks wow. until the noise was so big that everybody was going, you have to make this the single. And I did. And then it blew up. Yeah. And what happened? Was it? Did you do a seven-inch version? And then you must have had pluggers who took it to Radio 1. I mean, was it, it was all about Radio 1 in those days? Still, no, but it, it wasn't. That record wasn't. I mean, they tried, it did get on Radio 1, and it was quite a big radio record. But that's not what broke it. It was the clubs, Gary. That yeah, yeah. went in the clubs. Yeah. By that Christmas, the Acid House clubs had jumped on it in London. And then Manchester jumped on it. And it just became a big deal, you know? But it was that dance mix thing of, um, it was quite common on your kind of extended mixes and dance mixes where there's actually not that much primal scream on it. No, we had this big hit and it was fantastic. And then we went to do Come Together. This is true as well, right? And uh, we get the mixes back off of Weatherall and he sends us back to Jesse Jackson. You know, you know, music is just music mix. Music, and yeah. it's fucking great. And I played it to Bob, and Bob was like, I'm not on it. Bob left the band for about a day. <laughs> <Being ready. laughs> so we had Terry Farley doing the other mix, and I phoned Terry Farley up and threatened him and went, You want fucking paid, pal? Put him on the. <laughs> don't not put him on. Because I think he sent it back. I don't think Primal Scream were on the track. And I was like, You put him on the track. And then from that, we had the band version with Terry putting the dance beats on him. Because there was that kind of dilemma at that time, wasn't there? Because house music obviously was all instrumental pretty much. And then the Happy Mondays made their second album with hardly any Sean Ryder on it. Yeah. And, you know, people were a bit confused about what to do with the vocalist. Well, that's why it was funny when Moving On Up came out. And suddenly it's like, oh, there's a there's a rock and roll band here. <laughs> Who are these guys? <laughs> moving On Up since you, you, like, you, know, you like the Screaming Delica thing. Shannon O'Shea had played me some Jimmy Miller stuff and she went Jimmy wants to meet you right do you know what I mean blah 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 right Jimmy Miller for who did the Stones yeah yeah so, yeah. so I roll into a meeting Gary and I roll on in and it's uh, Jimmy Miller four o'clock in the afternoon in a hotel room and he's pissed out his tits and I was like, oh, fuck, one of these old rock dudes. I mean, like, I probably was one of these old rock dudes 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> he goes, oh, I've got this band from fucking Argentina or somewhere. However he was playing. And he played it. And it was it, without a great song, can I just say. But it was Exile and Main Street Stones to a T. Right, right. And I was suddenly like, that could work for somebody. Not thinking it could work for Primal Screen, but I thought... That could work for somebody. And then when moving on up, we didn't we didn't have Andy to mix that. Weatherall turned it down. I think he called it to Bobby. It's like tribute band Stones or something like that, right? And I went, what about Jimmy Miller? And you know what? They're such rock fans. They were like, yeah, yeah. Like, Fucking Jimmy Miller, let's do it. And it, it really worked. So that's how we got Jimmy Miller. And in a way, this what they were doing on that, say, on Scream Adelica album, especially was everything you'd ever dreamed about, really, because this was Psychedelica yeah. meets rock and roll meets Acid yeah. House. This is everything in your entire history in one album. Yeah. Brilliant record. I mean, I don't think I've as much satisfaction of breaking any other band other than Primal Scream because I grew up with them, do you know what I mean? And it was like, you know, when they got big, it felt really justifiable, you know what I mean? You know? But that was an absolutely unique point in sort of pop music history in that there was always a dance scene and there was always a rock scene and then like an indie scene. And this is, you know, the first time they became the same thing. Yeah. You know, that was an incredibly unifying moment. Well, it was a kind of dance indie as well, if you think, you know, because before then yeah. it was just chic and, and the big sort of, you know. That's what I mean. Yeah, it was, there was a, you know, yeah. disco. Yeah. But then, you know, but kind of new order had sort of led the way, really. Yeah. I guess we need to move on to Oasis, really, don't we? <laughs> Are you in Manchester? Are you still living in Manchester when you discover Oasis? Oh, no, no, I love, I want to hear the story from the horses out from you because there's been... You yeah, know, Noel's told us the story. Cinematically told, well, what yeah. happened is that I had been having a kind of on-off scenario with this girl called Debbie Turner. I was probably in love with, do you know what I mean? But it was, it was going on and on and on, right? And we weren't on at the time, but she was... From Acid House, I was hanging out with her, do you know what I mean, in Manchester. So we were really tight. And uh, she was doing her first ever show in King Tut's. Now, I had no idea that the people she shared the rehearsal room were the Gallicers. And she decided, because they were moaning that she had a gig and they didn't, they could come up and play King Tut's. So I show up to annoy the girl 
I'll kind of say, hey, I'm still here. Isn't there a train involved? No. Oh, is that boss? Yeah, okay. the truth, right? But I go on up and I walk on into King Tut's Wabba Hut and it's all a little bit like laid back because I didn't know that Glasgow was a city of culture that year. Basically, the pubs are open for 21 hours and the pubs pissed, you know what I mean? So I walked in and it, like, nothing was really moving. And I look over and there's this kid in a Man City blue Adidas tracksuit that looks like George Harrison meets George Best. And I thought, incredible looking guy, must be the drug dealer. Because back in 1983, <laughs> people that looked like that didn't sing in bands. But the people that served the drugs up, they all looked good looking. That was the collection of the time. So I was like, that'll be the drug dealer. And I looked at the baldy guy and I thought, he was bonehead, and I thought, I bet you that's the fucking singer. Anyway, these guys were trying to bully their way and intimidate the security into letting them play, right? There's about 12 of them. And they all kind of looked the same, except this one guy who's Liam Gallagher looked incredible. Didn't think too much more of it. He came to me, security, because I, I had two of the other bands, which was Boyfriend and 18 Wheeler. Do you mind if another band jumps on the bill, plays four songs? I don't care. Keep the peace. Didn't think anything of it. Was having a really boring conversation with somebody an hour and a half later, and somebody went, that band's went on. I couldn't think of a good reason not to go up. So I went up, and they started, and it was rock and roll star, and it was great, and I was like, pretty good. I mean, well, not pretty good. It was good. And I was like, yeah. And then they done Up in the Sky, and I was with my sister, and I went, I think I'm going to sign them. Then they did Bring It On Down, and I went, I'm fucking going to sign them. Uh, he only did four songs, and Liam goes, our next song's a Beatles song. And I thought, oh, here we go. Because back in 1993, all these indie bands were doing Beatles covers, and they were all shit. Right. So I just thought, here we go. You know, it's got to be shit. And, of course, it wasn't shit. And I was like, fuck. What did they do? What, was it? what, was, what was it? Which one was it? It was uh, I'm the Walrus. That's right, yeah, I've seen and, it. And you know yeah. what? That's a hard song to do well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I said to the sound guy, Coily, who I'd worked with, I said, who's the manager? No manager. But, right, okay. I went, who's the leader? No, go and get no. And then no trots down about 10 minutes later with a tape and going, do you want a tape? And I went, no. I said, do you want a deal? And he went, who was? And I went, creation. I think at that point he maybe clocked, oh, that's that guy, McGee, you know, we basically chatted for the next 20 minutes about the Pistols and, and the Beatles. And I said, I'll get you down to London. But I did go home that night. Well, not, not home. I was, I was in a hotel that night. I did go back to the hotel thinking, I wonder if they're, they're only good because I'm pissed. Do you know what I mean? You know? And I think there was other things involved as well. So I thought, mm, maybe. And then uh, I got them down. And, you know, it was an incredible meeting you know, four days later, one of the best meetings I'd ever had. And at that point, I was just, I'm going to sign them. Do you know what I mean? And why, why was the meeting so good? Is it because Liam was such a born rock star? No. Or was it just no, wasn't no, it? No, I'll tell you what happened, Gary. It's because I was such a rock fanatic at the time. My office was called The Bunker. And walking down to my office in Hackney, above a sweatshop, it was pictures of Lyle George. <laughs> uh, yes. George Harrison. Do you know what I mean? It was like, all the fucking people that I love, right? Who would have thought Lowell George? Seriously, but I, I, I have <laughs> deep respect for the man. And Noel comes down and I went, what are you into? And he goes, Lowell George, Paul Simonon. There was no way Noel was not walking out of that office without a fucking record deal. And I was like, that's a fucking blood brother. And, uh, and, and that was it, we'll sign you. And, and that was that, we totally shook it that day. And it was done that we were going to sign them. There's, there's a question I want to ask about that band in that, you know, you said you had, a, you had a chat with Noel about the Beatles and the Sex Pistols. These were kids, right? So this, in my memory, this was the first time when a band was looking back to be influenced. Because, you know, growing up, it was being the same age as you, it was always the bands that were happening in front of us that influenced us. There seemed to be a shift at that point, didn't there, to sort of archives. Oasis was a strange one. It's like, only because I'm like, I've kind of OCD about what I'm into. If you had logically looked about signing that band, you would never have done it. Do you know what I mean? Like, Manchester was two years previous. 
Yeah. The music business was totally not about that. And I came along at that point and just went, this is great. I'll sign it. Do you know what I mean? Because I like it. But I don't think I thought it's going to sell 60 million records. I don't think I thought that at all. Do you know what I mean? One would wonder if you saw Nebworth when you saw them no, at King Tut. Not at all. I probably thought, I get it out before the Stone Roses, the second album, I might get a gold record a couple of times. Do you know what I mean? So I'm just thinking of what's happening at the time because this thing of just straight ahead rock and roll wasn't really that. I mean, what was happening at that time? You had Massive Attack, you had Suede, I guess. Yeah. But there, there wasn't really a focal point, was yeah. there, musically? Yeah. No, no, it was, it was strange. It was just, it was, because I'd been up in Manchester and, you know, I, I was really influenced by that Mondays. I loved Manchester. I loved that. And that's what Oasis really were. That's what people miss. But I think there must be, I mean, listen, it goes without saying that Liam had stardom and charisma in spades and along with Noel's sort of triumphant anthemic songs, this was, you know, a brotherhood made in hell. (laughs) But there must have been a cultural anticipation for this band, for it to blow so big so soon. There must have been. And when you look at Nebworth and you look at that crowd, and let's face it, this is white working class. Yeah. What was it at that point that was just waiting for lads to walk on stage who looked exactly like them, who swore and behaved exactly like they would like to behave? It was just waiting to be born, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a moment. It was an absolute moment. I see. I I remember when I uh, I played it to what's his name, the guy that became the head of Sony Music, Blair something or other. Right? And this is before Oasis had put a record out. Before Tony Blair. <laughs> Blair, they had a first option on a, anything I, I signed, right? You know, with a publishing. And I had to play them at. And, uh, and Blair was like, Alan, Manchester is over. And I, you know what? I'm like, oh, well, it's the greatest rock and roll band in the world, which I no doubt fucking believe. Do you know what I mean? But uh, it took so long for Sony Publishing to sign that. Do you know what I mean? It took them nine months. Wow. And the the interesting thing is, because where this is going with Britpop, is that Blur are already around. They've already been around for a while, putting out records. And they've already had a hit or two. No, Blur were big. When we put out Definitely Maybe, Blur had just sold two million part life records. They were a really big band. They'd had the first album, they'd had that big hit, She's So High. The Sid Barrett one, yeah. Second album had been critically acclaimed, but hadn't sold. That's right. And they were right on the verge of kind of, and they came out with Park Life and it blew up, you know what I mean? Look, I love Blur in, in their own right, and you know, and Damon's a great artist and everything. But when you think back now, there's no comparison yeah. between the two. I mean, they're making absolutely different music. How anyone could put them in the same world is extraordinary. And without any shadow of a doubt, you know, Leah was was and, and Noel were just the bigger stars, you know. And but you know what, Gary? The night that I signed Oasis, I met them right and King Tut's Wildheart, thirty first of May. 1993. I'm going to tell you something that's totally factually true. Liam was very quiet. He wasn't dominating it. He looked amazing, but he stood. What was more impressive that night was the sound of the band and Noel's guitar playing. That's kind of why I did it. Yeah, you're right, because Liam stood stood very still on stage, didn't he? And almost that was probably part of his uh, shyness in a way, not knowing what to do with himself, where, you know, someone like Bobby was doing the whole Jagger thing. Yeah, it was. Liam now stands still, but he dominates the stage. It wasn't like that. He was standing still just singing. He wasn't throwing it out there. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, And it was... The sound of the band was real. They could really play. By that point, they were really rehearsed and, do you know what I mean? It was good. So what was the timeline there? How fast did it move with you? The album happened very quickly. Well, I found them. took about three or four months to sign them. There was lack of money with us. Eventually, we put it through a Sony company. I had English rights. I owned the whole of the England thing. Uh, And then I was paid four points for an override for all all the other records outside England. So it was a good deal for me personally. That's the way we done it. Do you know what I mean? You know, and uh, you know, because I literally I didn't have the forty grand to sign them, so I had to go and get some money. <laughs> do you know what I mean? And that took four months. And by that point, I had got America interested. 
so we had we had a worldwide kind of release idea, you know. Because you had a relationship with Seymour Stein, yeah. didn't you? Hadn't yeah, you been... I love it. So I wondered if he was a sort of like mind, I guess. That's Sire Records, sort of, isn't it? Talking sort of Heads. Maverick, sort of Sire Records, yeah. Signed the Ramones and Blondie. And... He signed off me Primal Scream, Ride, My Bloody Valentine. He, he had a real great run with me. But I think he, when I wanted to do a, rec, a, a label deal, because we were going bankrupt at the time, I don't think he thought there was much more juice in it. Do you know what I mean? So, you know... He didn't want to give us whatever we were looking for, which probably wasn't that much. And uh, and yet Sony came in and then done this 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 deal, and it kind of all worked out. As Oasis, I mean, it was absolutely huge. Did people like Kevin and and Bobby? Did they feel like a bit let down? Were they sort of like, oh, you, you, now you've got a new back kid in town? And was there any of that going on with your other acts? Look, yeah, it, Bobby, I think really felt it, but. We've never really talked about it. Get him on your show and ask him. Do you know what I mean? You know, We'd but... love him on the show. By the way, when you see him on <laughs> Saturday, him, yeah. please tell, tell him. Tell him. Tell him to tell get him. in touch. Yeah. Well, I'll tell him. I'll tell him. But uh, he probably really felt it. Kevin was gone by that point. But the thing is, you've got to keep in contact. You two... Oh, yeah. Kevin was starting his album that would take 20 years, right? <laughs> it was. Funny. But think on this, guys, it's like Oasis were like, they were 20 times bigger than any of these other bands. Literally 20 yeah. times bigger. Yeah. How, you, you couldn't be in a bad mood about it, no matter who you were. That's just a thing. Yeah. Yeah. It was because when, you know, when we had Noel on, which is pretty, and I, I told him how I'd gone to Main Road to, because um, there was that lovely thing which he confirmed for me that he'd gone to see Floyd at Main Road. And that was when all the acid house generation got into yeah. Floyd, which is, well, I'd seen it. And um, I remember that the, when they played Earl's Court, and he said, mate, we think we're here, man. Pink Floyd was here only a year ago yeah. or something. And I, so I went to see him with David Gilmore <laughs> at Earl's Court. And it was, it was incredible how they were tracking. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, it was incredible. You know I, mean? I guess, you know, when you're on a lot of drugs and you're doing a lot of drugs, you know, you need to hit rock bottom before you decide you're going to, uh, yeah. you know, stop. But you're on a lot of drugs and then you have this massive hit band come on. You know, and it all, it's, just, it's all working for you. But how did you keep the balance? At what point was Oasis all already up and running? Was that, had that already happened? When We got Owen in. I went into rehab as we were struggling with the mixes. Noel and Marcus were bringing me Owen Morris mixes into rehab. saying, right. McKee, listen to this. I was like, yeah, yeah, it's great. You know, it, was, it was kind of mad. It was, the Oasis thing's not seat of the pants because it's it's right when it's right it's really right but there was a lot of that that it was just it's haphazard you know you had a crash in in America didn't you yeah, yeah 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 and then I just I went off Gary for about nine months and then came back and then I've managed to stay you know off drugs for since then you know congratulations yeah well done well actually it does because you did say earlier I was wondering how when you saw Oasis said I want to give him a deal and, and waking up the next day and thinking oh shit was that because I was pissed and I was high yeah, or whatever yeah. has that happened <laughs> are there bands that you've woken up and gone oh no yeah it is <laughs> I remember them. don't expect you to say who it is because obviously that would be crushing for them <laughs> I had that? an absolute bender one night and I signed this. It was almost a Depeche Mode tribute band. What were they called? Counterfeit. Nobody, luckily, nobody remembers it, right? And I put out this a uh, 12 inch 1989 coming off the back of like a really good weekend. You know, I'll sign you and I'll put it out. And then literally six weeks later, you know, okay, what have I done? <laughs> There was a few like that. You know? Do you think people were at parties going, no, no, give it another couple of hours, then we'll approach you. <laughs> <laughs> Send in the deal. Um, you, know, you know, I mean, you're, you know, famously, you didn't like the establishment of the record company and, you know, you were staunch indie label owner, manager. Suddenly you're in number 10 Downing Street. Yeah. I do love that. That was quite an extraordinary moment, wasn't it, in cultural history? You and Noel and, and Tony Blair. Gary, I was like, I was a long, long story, but it's like... Go on, then. <laughs> Go on, then. Go on. That's what we're here for, mate. So I'm at Nebworth, and I've been in the Labour Party for two years, right? Because I've got clean now, right? And I'm at Nebworth two years later, right? It's a second night, and there's these wee guys. I tell you who one of them is, and you'll go, no way, right? A guy called Derek and a guy called somebody else, right? And Derek is Derek Draper. 
who has just come out of the coma. You know the TV presenter's husband? Y- yes, 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 of course, of course. Yes. Well, that's who Derek was. He was actually Peter Mandelson's uh, or Gordon Brown's uh, PR. PR guy. That's, so anyway, Derek comes up to me and goes, are you Alan McGee of the Labour Party? And I went, I am. And then I went, because it sort of worked out, I think he's in the Labour Party, this guy that's just done Nebworth for this big fucking band. And and I said, yeah, I am. And he, and he went, and I said, and you haven't given me my wee Labour card. from my, if You take my £15, but you never gave me my card. Went, <laughs> so they're like, right. Now that was like Sunday. And then I think the Monday I got a phone call and it was like, Margaret McDonough, the general secretary of the Labour Party for Alan McGee on the tannoy. On the, on the office thing. So I picked the phone up and she goes, oh, can I come round and see you? So she brings me my Labour card and then she goes, uh, oh, we want to ask you a direct question. Will you help us? And I'm like, well, what capacity? And she goes, just get involved and help us do it. I'm like, okay, I will. And they went, okay, what do you want me to start? I'm like, can Oasis play the youth party comes in Blackpool? I went, okay, when is it? And they go, Saturday night. And I was like, Saturday night? This Saturday night? Or two Saturday nights, maybe two Saturday nights. Anyway, I phoned Noel, and Noel was like knackered and blah, blah, blah. Just give them a platinum disc, McGee. I went, all right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> a platinum disc, and there's like Creation Records and Oasis give Tony Blair and the Labour Party platinum record, right? And I bowl up to the youth conference, meet Tony Blair, and give him this fucking disc, right? And that was the beginning of them trying to bring me in. And then I got to know them. It was bizarre. I mean, it was totally bizarre. I mean, it was like Peter Mandelson, who I kind of like, to be honest. But This is before they got voted in in 97, yeah. right? Anyway, it, it ran on and, do you know what I mean? I gave them some money and it was all of that stuff. And not for wanting anything, you know, because I actually believed in it. And uh, eventually... Uh, it got, they got in, which was brilliant. I went to Royal uh, Festival Hall. It was fucking great. I was put in charge, Gary, you'll love this one. I was put in charge of Mick Hucknell. <laughs> <laughs> they said, well, you look after nice. him. Nice. <laughs> Before that vote in 97, I, I was doing the same sort of thing. I was going up and doing a few of the, uh, you know, the conferences yeah. and... Uh, yeah. I mean, we were all trying to help. We'd all been sick of the of the government that we'd had for so yeah. long. I, I can vouch for this, Gary. I remember you going out and knocking on doors, canvassing. Yeah, you are. You like me, yeah. man. So and then they said, do you want to come to 10 Downing Street? I never thought Noel would come. Right? You know what I mean? You know, I had to ask him. They said, oh, do you, you know, bring Noel. And, you know, and I was like, yeah, yeah, I'll ask him. And I said, do you want to come? And then he came back and went, yeah, I'm going to come. And I was like, God, I was kind of gobsmacked he wanted to come, but I was like, all right, come. And then he goes, I'll pick you up in the Rolls Royce. And then... We, we trotted off we, with my wife and, uh, and Meg, as missus, and we went and done it. I've got to be honest, I went because I'm Scottish. I, I went because I thought, I'm never going to be asked back to this ever again. So I may as well see what it yeah, yeah. And, I, and I did, and I've never been asked back. You know I mean? uh, there's a, that extraordinary uh, sort of overheard thing, isn't there, when um, Noel says something to Blair about how'd you stay up all night, and he says, probably not the same <laughs> way you do. And they're sort of like, tacit admit it. It's like, so... That's like the Prime Minister saying, well, it's cool that you do drugs. I mean, it's an extraordinary, <laughs> extraordinary moment. But the, the other thing that's amazing is the fact that because so much of that whole Britpop Oasis thing, phenomenon, is seen as part of this cool Britannia, new Labour Britain. But it actually mainly happened under John Major's toys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the funny thing. Do you know what really was a good thing of me getting involved with Labour, though, was people don't really know this, but I managed to get legislation through it was called New Deal for Musicians. Yeah. And you could be a musician for four years. Yeah, yeah. And uh, as long as you could prove you really were a musician, they would pay you your money, but not going to get a job by being a musician. That got put through because I kind of got in my labour. So I suppose... Uh, do we know if any bands came out of that? I think we were, some, a, a few bands. I think Libertines. I think Libertines did, it, did that. Amazing. That deal. But it's funny because what we all used to do was you'd be on the dole and you just had to come up with the most obscure job that you could yeah. do so that you couldn't get one. I remember youth said he was a shepherd. That's yeah. how we used to get this doll. <laughs> but he probably was. <laughs> um, you ended up selling creation. Yeah. 
to Sony, right? Yeah. Why did that happen and how did your bands react to that? We were going bankrupt and... How could you go bankrupt with Oasis no, as big as they were? Oasis. Because we were right, going right. bankrupt because we had no seed money. Do you know what I mean? So there was never yeah. any... We didn't start with anything. It was literally a punk label that got bigger and bigger and bigger. Was it literally just go and see the manager at the local bank? Is that how you made well, things happen? We, it, it, it was a bit worse than that, dude. It was more like... We'd always owe press implants quarter of a million. And, do you know what I mean? And that went on for six years. Do you know what I mean? We never paid one month, and then do you know what I mean? So we always owed two or three months. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Instead of owing, I think instead of owing ninety days, we owed in hundred and twenty days. It was like so the debt was always humongous, and I think we eventually sold to Sony in ninety two for like not a lot of money, forty nine percent. At that point, we gone bankrupt, but they gave me two and a half million for forty nine percent. So that was good. We got into business with them, and then Oasis happened, and they had a they could buy me out at a certain point. So I had to fight them off, and then we we changed the deal to that they put money down against eventually buying me out. Do you know what I mean? So they paid me a whole ton of money after Oasis, and, and it ended up I did great out of it. But do you know what I mean? I, I wasn't quite called up. It wasn't, in some ways, it didn't reflect the, the massive band that I'd brought them, do you know what I mean? But it was still great, you know what I mean? It was still great. But I can imagine Noel and Liam not being so concerned, but I suppose the guy that has been part of this story right from the beginning is is Bobby Gillespie, yeah. and suddenly Bobby's no longer in your indie label. He's now signed to Sony, and you're, and you're just, you've gone. How was it for him? I don't think it was that great, but it, it was equally, it hasn't stopped him, do you know what I mean? You know, it, yeah, yeah. It, it was, it was fractious for a while. You're right, do you know what I mean? You know, the truth is, Gary, I'm not really a business person and my parents weren't business people. It was a punk label that maybe because I could pick good bands, it became this huge thing. Nobody had ever told me how to deal with this. At one point, in the late 90s, Gary, we were doing 40 million a year turnover every year. Do you know what I mean? And, and wow. that's the mid-90s. I don't know what that would mean now, but that was wow. the mid-90s. And I was this guy with one O-level and no business sense, really, blagging it. And at a certain point, I think I just wanted out. I think it got too big. Do you know what I mean? Not a great answer, but that is the truth. No, no, no. That's, you deserve the rewards, I guess. It's interesting as if you were that young man now, what would you do? Not sell. I mean, because now we're in a... Yeah. I, mean, God, I mean, we're talking to one of Britain's really great songwriters, Gary Kemp. I mean, it's like, look, I'm sure you've not done the deal yet, Gary, but the deal's on the table now is people buy your songs, my God. Do you know what I mean? That's a lot of money. Mm. And that's, mm -hmm. we're in a different place again with the music business. I know little bands that, if I said their name, I won't say it, I would struggle to sing one of their hits. They just got paid five million by Merck. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. I know what people get paid and it's in a different place. So, to answer that question, I wouldn't have sold, but different time, right. you know. You know, we'd love to go through everything else, you know, death, disco yeah. and everything. We all have our moments that is just like where we create something out of the blue and it's yeah. uh, and it lives with us forever in legend. And you've done that a few times, Alan. Thank you. But what is happening now? You just got creation back together again. Yeah, but I've got a little version of that. It's like the music business, you guys know, me and an iPhone yeah. versus the world. Do you know what I mean? And... Yeah. I'm like, Sunday night I was negotiating a Ferrari ad and then blah, blah, blah. Do you know what I mean? Because you still have the publishing for quite a lot of the bands, right? I've got publishing in Primal Scream. Uh, oh, right. But most of it's Reverti. I had Knowles publishing. I had the, because I'd introduced them to Sony. I had that up to 2011. Do you know what I mean? That wow. was beautiful. But the rights revert, <laughs> don't they? Do you know what I mean? You know? But yeah, it's good. Look, look, I'm happy. I mean, I managed the Mondays. Sean Ryder and a load of other people. Oh, okay, I didn't know that. It's okay, man. You know what I mean? I'm like, I'm old now. It's like you can't always be the trailblazer. You know what I mean? And what's happening? What do you think's happening out there? Is there new kids on the block that you don't get anymore? Or I think there's some great new bands. I think the fans want rock and roll. I just don't know if the media or the DSPs want rock and roll. You know what I mean? But there is some great, great bands. Do you know what I mean? You know, I know them. Do you know what I mean? I've, I manage one of them. Do you know what I mean? You know, so it's what it is. You know. mm -hmm. Thanks for Brilliant. coming on. 
That's such short notice. That's great. But um, I'd love to meet up. We'd love to meet up and have a I cup know, of tea. I want to meet you. And I, I've, I've actually listened to every one of your pods. That's great. Thank oh. you, man. Thank, thank you. Thank you. I'll get your details. All the best. Thanks, mate. Thanks, That Alan. gets you into the intro at some point, by the way, that quote. <laughs> Brilliant. The irrepressible Alan McGee. That was wonderful, wasn't it? I mean, I think he's our, fir- yeah. he's our first manager, but he's kind, of a, he's kind of a rock star manager, isn't he? But he's the last of that line of Mavericks, isn't he? Which is kind of goes from like Andrew Lou Gold and Kit Lambert, Chris Stamp. Through to, uh, dare I say, I would put Steve Dagger on that. Yes, yes, it's band our um, manager. And also, we never mentioned yeah. Malcolm McLaren, who must have been a... Malcolm, of course, that, uh, yes. A massive influence on what he did. But what a time, yeah. what a time that was. And yeah. to be at the centre of that storm. Yeah, I think it's more about just being that person who doesn't freak out. It's like Wiley Coyote, isn't it? He runs off the cliff and as, as long as he doesn't look down. <laughs> <laughs> so listen, thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with, with someone else beautiful and interesting and full of anecdotes about rock. Until then. Indeed. And oh... And I think there was a first this week as the word didn't come up. The word beginning with P? Yes. We won't mention it then. We won't. (laughs) (laughs) And it's good night from me. And it's good night from me. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.